The hierarchy we take for granted today is just an inevitable part of being human, whether it's the foundational hierarchy of patriarchy, you know, male dominance or white supremacy or the economic inequality and in capitalism. All of those are taken to be inevitable, but, you know, a high school knowledge of anthropology tells us they're not only not inevitable, they're actually a kind of uh, a deviation from most of human history. Mm. And so humane means in some sense going back, not going back in some nostalgic way where we're all going to be hunters and gatherers, but trying to draw on the best of human history to ask how can we reduce and distribute human suffering in a way that comports with our ethical norms and how can we minimize the damage we do to the ecosystems and other living creatures of the world? Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political, and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Bob Jensen. Bob is a former professor of journalism who's written extensively as a political theorist on media law and ethics. He joined me from rural New Mexico to talk about the book that he co-authored with Wes Jackson, An Inconvenient Apocalypse. However, this conversation took a beautiful turn. And instead of discussing the book chapter by chapter, we explored its overarching message that civilization as we know it cannot continue, that we have a population and consumption problem, and that a humane transition will demand creativity and resilience at the community level. We discussed all of that through stories. This is such a lovely episode. We swapped stories about what creativity looks like, what resilience looks like, what happiness can look like. We swapped stories about how the neoliberal agenda is eroding that in our day-to-day -day life and how communities around the world are finding it again by confronting the crisis head-on when their governments will not. We spoke of the importance of the connection to land and to each other as a way of navigating the upcoming turbulence and as a way of navigating inner turbulence, turbulence created by dislocated populations, forced to enlist themselves in a global financial system that promotes bullshit jobs and consumption as the only form of pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation. It took turns I think neither of us were anticipating, and I'm really thrilled to present you all with it today. I also introduced a new project that I launched a couple of months ago and hadn't yet announced on the show, but given this is an episode all about stories, I just thought this was the perfect place to do it. The project is called We Will Bear Witness. The links are in the show notes. You'll have to listen to the episode to discover exactly what it is, but I hope you will all join me in sharing our stories together about this moment in time, our stories of resilience and our stories of destruction, as Bob and I did during this episode. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques, and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, 
So Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Bob, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, it's an honor to be with you. So thank you. I was really grateful when you reached out uh, to have me read your book and get you on the show to discuss it. Um, out of curiosity, how did you find me? Uh, well, this was several months ago, and I don't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. So <laughs> you have to understand the aging memory. It doesn't work so well. My guess is that uh, Planet Critical has popped up on a lot of uh, people's radar as one of the places where folks are willing to talk bluntly, honestly about ecological and social realities. So I'm always on the lookout, especially, uh, again, on the aging front. Uh, <laughs> I'm now 64 years old, and I'm always interested in how younger people are coping with realities that um, are perhaps a little different for those of us who are closer to the grave than to the cradle. Mm, yes, the talk of collapse. I think there was some research that came out recently that showed that Gen Z are confronting it far superior to to other generations, including millennials. They really do feel like the world is on the brink of ending. Yeah, I I don't doubt that, although I might add a, a slight footnote that really no one is confronting it. If by confronting, we mean really dealing with the scope of the change that is coming. And that is change whether or not we take you know, action, whether there are laws and policies put in place that are, you and I might think, rational ways to deal with it. Uh, I think one of the things that's so difficult is the scale of the change coming is so overwhelming. It's really unprecedented in human history. And so I think different people have a different level of engagement. But I think we're all struggling to, to recognize that the future is going to look nothing like the future we imagine. Uh, the working title for the book that we're going to talk about uh, uh, was The Old Future's Gone. And I borrowed mm -hmm. that uh, from a songwriter named John Gorka. It's a beautiful song. And to me, the phrase, the old future is gone, means that the future I grew up imagining. I was born in 1958, the post-World War II boom. The assumption that there would always be more, an expanding economic pie, the real question for my generation was always posed as equity and fairness. How do we feed the world? How do we achieve some sort of decent uh, distribution of wealth? That was the future I was trained to be part of, uh, a constant expansion. And I believe the, the new future, the future we have to deal with, is one of permanent contraction. So the old future is gone. And that's not easy for any of us to get our heads around. Uh, but the new future is going to look quite different than the one I was told to prepare for. Mm. There's a wonderful Imagineer in the UK called Phoebe Tickle. And she likes to say that we are living in the imaginations of past generations. Yeah. And those imaginations are no longer useful. Those are the kind mm. of imaginations that give us, uh, I'm going to give you my opinion, harebrained ideas like we're going to go live on Mars. You know, that, that imagination that technology and human ingenuity can conquer all problems. That's part of that old future. And that imagination is not only, I think, um, inaccurate, I think it's counterproductive to believe that we are going to technologize ourselves out of this current condition is, I think, part of the illusion that people are grasping. But, and 
you know, I was making a joke about folks like Elon Musk. It's always easy to poke fun at the Elon Musks of the world who imagine colonizing Mars and, and other insanity. Uh, but too much of the contemporary society, including the environmental movement, I think, does Im either implicitly or explicitly bet on technology to solve problems that are really, I think, beyond the reach of technology to address. Yes and no, um, because I think we have to add a, a sort of class analysis here. Um, Elon wants to colonize Mars. I've got no bloody idea if that is actually in some way technologically feasible. Um, but this idea that, you know, we're going to innovate our way out, I think it, that kind of fits the story and the paradigm that we are uh, living in, in the sense that lots of technology has come along. Has it been used to lift the majority out of poverty? Has it been used to give the majority access to healthcare, to education, to connection, all of these kinds of things? No. Technology exists to continue funneling wealth, essentially, up to the top. Technology exists to raise the comfort levels of those at the top. So I think that there's nuance in the, the techno-optimist argument, putting aside the environmentalists for a while. We do face the danger of the elite class figuring out a way to innovate that allows them to maintain a sense of comfort and security, perhaps, whilst billions and billions around the world are forced to live in a climate that is not put for human beings. Because that's kind of what we're seeing already. Yeah. I agree that the question of equity and the question of sustainability have to be understood as both connected, but also separate. So I, mm -hmm. I agree completely that um, the, the, the current world economic system, which we tend to call capitalism, corporate capitalism, neoliberalism, whatever term you want to use, is a fundamentally unsustainable system. Although for some period of time, those people with disproportionate access to wealth and power can protect themselves. But that's a short-term game. The long-term game is that this current level of human uh, population and human aggregate consumption is unsustainable under any economic system. So in the book that I mentioned earlier, which is titled An Inconvenient Apocalypse, my co-author Wes Jackson and I talk about hard problems, hard questions that people tend to avoid, one of which is the size and level of consumption of the human species that's compatible with a sustainable world. And people will argue about this. I think the ecologists I trust who I think have done work that's trustworthy don't have a specific number. Nobody can tell you, well, you know, you know, 4 billion people living at this level can be sustained. Uh, I'm not really fond of predictions, especially when we're talking about questions that are far beyond human intelligence. But Wes and I argue that whatever the number and whatever the level of consumption that is compatible with sustainability over the long term, it's fewer and less, far fewer people consuming much less energy. The ecologists I trust say that the ultimate number is probably going to be around 2 billion people tops. All right. Well, we live in a, na in a world with 8 billion people uh, and no one has a plan, me, you, or anyone else, for how to get from 8 billion to a sustainable level of human population and consumption. Those are hard questions. And because they're so hard and because no one has answers, we tend not to ask them. But I think too many people bet 
when, when faced with that hard question, do bet on technology. Now, the argument I would make is even if we had overnight an equitable distribution of wealth, right, something that comports to our basic ethical norms, and, and that's an important point, that the current world situation is inconsistent with almost everybody's ethical norms. Hmm. Okay? But if we were to achieve that overnight, we're still looking at a problem that has no solution. If the solution means, if by solution we mean 8 billion people continuing to live in some version of this high energy, high technology world, um, I think it's time to say that that game is over. It doesn't mean we don't do anything. It doesn't mean we collapse into nihilism or, you know, passivity. It means we reformulate the idea of what our goals are. And the goal, it seems to me, is some sort of humane transition to a world that we can't really imagine right now. Mm, yeah, a life beyond our wildest imaginations. Mm. But what does a humane transition look like? Well, to me, a humane transition means minimizing human suffering and an equitable distribution of that suffering. Uh, now, you know, some people would say, well, that's just kind of uh, pie in the sky thinking. But we have to remember that an equitable distribution of the struggles in life is not inconsistent with human nature. In fact, for most of our evolutionary history on the planet, human beings lived in small-scale foraging societies, gathering and hunting. And in those societies, there was very little hierarchy. You know, the, the hierarchy we take for granted today is just an inevitable part of being human, whether it's the, the foundational hierarchy of patriarchy, you know, male dominance, or white supremacy or the economic inequality and in capitalism. All of those are taken to be inevitable, but, you know, a high school knowledge of anthropology tells us they're not only not inevitable, they're actually a kind of uh, a deviation from most of human history. Mm -hmm. And so humane means in some sense going back, not going back in some nostalgic way where we're all going to be hunters and gatherers. That uh, ship sailed a long time ago but trying to draw on the best of human history to ask how can we reduce and distribute human suffering in a way that comports with our ethical norms and how can we minimize the damage we do to the ecosystems and other living creatures of the world. Um, it's easy to formulate that goal at that level. The, you know, the real difficulty, of course, is in figuring out how to do that and how to go from this high energy, high technology society to something that resembles a sustainable and just society. One doesn't have to have a, you know, a 10 point plan to take off the shelf with your notebook and hand to the, the policymakers, but one can start to, to try to imagine how that would look at the local level, how to try to scale that up from the local level. Um, there's all sorts of experiments and, and traditions that are useful in that, uh, you know, I recently relocated to, to rural New Mexico, and I participate in a, an irrigation system we call the Asequia system. It's an incredibly ingenious, centuries-old system of doing flood irrigation using the water from uh, rivers that are fed by snowmelt in the mountains here. It's a communal and collective system. It's organized, but it's not executed by governments succeeds or fails based on how well neighbors can get along. Uh, in a way, I think in the three years I've been here, I've gotten more of an education about human nature, both our foibles and our strengths, 
than I had in the rest of my life because I've been on the ground, you know, cleaning ditches with neighbors. Um, often neighbors I may not have much in common with, but we have a shared commitment to the flow of that water. That's where the, I think the innovation is. I, I don't deny the importance of what happens in London, in Washington, in Paris, what happens at the world uh, level. But I think the, the insights that are going to allow a human species to survive are probably going to come from the ground up. So Definitely. I mean, I think it ties back into what you said about the old future being gone. Yeah. Um, people who are sort of barricaded in institutions, dislocated from land, dislocated mm -hmm. from communities, they are perpetuating that old future because they're yeah. not living with the reality of their decisions. Whereas it is what we are seeing is local communities are finding ways yeah. to innovate either socially, physically, whatever, um, to deal with and mitigate the problems being caused by centralized governments, typically. Yeah. Um, so I completely agree with you. Yeah. I, I, I kind of want to go back to this population question, though. You're not the first person to say this on the show. Our population needs to reduce. Um, typically, the number is between two to four billion. Mm -hmm. That's the range that comes up. And yet, well, I, I interviewed Nindita Bajaj about this, and she said there's lots of ways to influence population, like, you know, um, education in young women, access to birth control, all these kinds of things. Nobody is talking about a eugenics, um, you know, campaign. And I think it's really clear to state that. But still, 8 billion to 2 billion in a short time frame as well, because the planet mm -hmm. is on past breaking point. What does a humane transition of that look like? Uh, well, first of all, we have to recognize that a humane transition may not be possible. And, and some people would tell me that's defeatist, but I don't think coming to terms with the biophysical realities of the planet is defeatist. I think it helps us formulate workable goals. Let me, let me go back to something you said, the speed of this population increase. Uh, and, and I want to try and make it real. My father, by coincidence, was born in 1927. In 1927, the world population was 2 billion. Mm. By the middle of his life, the world population had increased to 4. When he died last year, the world was on the cut of 8 billion people. That means in one person's lifetime, you know, basically three human generations, the world population doubled and then doubled again. That is unprecedented and hard to, I think, get our heads around. And of course, the only reason that was possible was the concentrated energy of coal, oil, and gas. Take mm -hmm. away that dense energy and you don't have that population growth. All right. We were on the, you know, the upside of the hill. The downside of the hill is a, a much more challenging situation. My co-author, Wes Jackson, uh, uses the term downpowering because it's important to recognize that a reduction in human population is going to go forward also with a reduction in the energy available. Uh, Nandita, whose group population balance I'm familiar with and I, I think is doing great work because it does break with the sometimes racist and anti-immigrant history of the population movement. That, you know, Nandita to me is the new face of thinking about population control. And we do know that some things do slow the rate of population growth, including the education of girls and the improvement in the status of women. That's well documented. But the speed at which we need to proceed to a lower population, uh, no one has a plan for that. And the other thing we should keep in mind, and this is reflected in a lot of news coverage recently, where people, especially in the industrial world, 
are nervous because population growth is flowing or mm -hmm. flat. So instead of asking, how can we reduce the population? These folks are saying, how can we increase the population? And I think they're wrong, but they're not crazy because of course we have an economic model that's based on and demands growth. And so if growth slows, if population slows, you've got a, you know, a world economic infrastructure that's built on growth and it's not going to be an easy transition. So, uh, you know, I keep adding to the reasons these things are hard more than offering solutions, but I, I think that's the phase we're in. There is so much denial about ecological realities that there is a kind of bluntness, bluntness needed. And then the question is, as I said earlier, how do we reformulate goals? So instead of how do we, you know, feed 8 billion people equitably, which we can do today with today's agriculture, we, you know, with reasonable economic and social policies, we could feed 8 billion people, right? That's an important goal to try to achieve today because human suffering is always, you know, an important goal to minimize. But the long term is not how do we keep feeding 8 billion people? That's not going to be possible. And so what is that transition look like? How do we start to form everywhere from the communal to the international level policies consistent with that? If governments, if institutions, universities are not at the forefront of this, it's left to people. And you do see these things happening, especially you, you mentioned younger people. I know lots of young people who are essentially dropping out of the traditional career track. I was a university professor for nearly 30 years. And when people ask me for career advice today, I say, well, the first thing is don't go to university. Right? Not because there's nothing good that happens at universities. Lots of wonderful things happens at universities. I, I loved my time there. But, um, you know, the skilled trades, the ability to stitch together the infrastructure of the industrial world, which isn't going to continue forever, but we're going to have to keep it running. All of these things are important, as are sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture, lots of terms for this, you know, all under kind of the, the banner of agroecology. So there are lots of things to do to try to ease this transition. Uh, but I think we have to recognize that it's a rough road ahead. Uh, people might say, well, you're 64, you're going to be dead before the worst of it hits, probably. And that may be true. But the fact that that's true doesn't mean that this is an inaccurate analysis. It just means we've all got a lot of very hard truths to stare at, I think. Hmm. It's difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, and let's let's talk about this as, I know you're a professor of journalism. Let's talk about this as storytellers, mm -hmm. you know. The impending collapse of civilization as we know it, that, that is also what I believe, and that mm -hmm. is sort of what this podcast, you know, uh, toys with, um, and it's what I think about. By the same token, I'm not always convinced that that is the story that needs to be told now mm -hmm. in order to enact sort of the progression to the next stages that we need if we are to actually combat that collapse. Mm -hmm. You know, I think degrowth is an excellent story um, that prioritizes well-being and um, a better relationship with the earth and equity, everything that you're talking about. Um, can you speak to that on which stories we should be telling at which uh, phases yeah. in order to try and progress? I, I agree completely. In in the book, An Inconvenient Apocalypse, 
Wes and I talk about the need to rethink the skills, spaces, and stories that are essential for a new future. The skills we've already mentioned, you know, the skills of growing food without, you know, intensive inputs based on energy. The spaces, uh, you know, you and I are talking over the internet and I have no problem with online communication, but at some point, face-to-face -face communication is going to be the dominant way human beings interact again. And that has to take place in, in specific places in the world. And we have to develop those. And in many places, those communal spaces of atrophied, right? Skills, spaces, and stories are crucial. Uh, most of the stories told today, the implicit message about success is about advancing your career, getting money, getting famous, whatever. Um, I'm in the United States and today, as I was reading the New York Times, uh, I couldn't help but look at the story about the Met Gala. So excuse the mm. digression here. The Met Gala is a big party yeah. in New York City where unknown hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions of dollars are spent on the dresses and suits that famous people wear. Okay. Those are stories we tell now about what's, you know, to use a phrase from my generation, what's cool in the world. And we have to have stories about how success is defined differently, uh, what it means to be human is defined differently. And most of the stories today are about, you know, movie stars and athletes and powerful politicians. And those are not the stories of the future. So where do we look? Well, uh, my co-author, Wes Jackson, uh, the book he did before this one, uh, has the provocative title, Hogs Are Up. And uh, it's, I think, the best book title in human history, Hogs Are Up. <laughs> I like that. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what the, the phrase means, but uh, Wes was a child of the, the Depression, grew up on a, a small, diversified family farm in Kansas during the Great Depression. Now, I don't want to romanticize poverty or the Depression. You know, it was a horrific time in human history for all sorts of reasons. But the thing that Wes's family had was land. They didn't have any money. They had land and they had knowledge. They had knowledge built over generations about how to work that land. Right? They had a diversified truck farm with as many as 25 different crops a year. In other words, they lived in a way almost directly antithetical to, to traditional to farming, conventional farming in the world today, especially mm. in places like the U.S. So what stories are useful? Well, Wes didn't realize he grew up in a deprived childhood because he was part of a loving community and a loving family with access to land. Now, again, I don't want to be nostalgic or romanticize this because, of course, not everybody has access to land. Right? That's part of that equity question. How do we distribute the wealth of the world in some sort of you know, ethical manner? But Wes's stories about how they made do uh, were really quite engaging for me. Uh, and, you know, they, the farms of the U.S. Depression are not the only places where those stories can be told. They're told all over the world, uh, how people endure uh, through communal solidarity, often without the, the traditional markers of wealth and power. I think those are the stories to tell. Uh, personally, I find them endlessly fascinating how, how that kind of creativity is important in human history. And, and I think creativity is at the core of this. Right now, if you ask people, give me stories about human creativity, you're going to get, you know, how we invented uh, artificial intelligence and how we can, you know, blast off rockets to outer space. All of that is, in fact, creative. You know, what 
modern engineers do takes creativity. But the stories about creativity I find much more compelling are not the ones where people use high energy to do groovy things. It's people who may do with less. I would like to take this opportunity to announce something on the podcast, which I hadn't done yet. Mm -hmm. um, I launched a new project called We Will Bear Witness. Uh -huh. And it is a media project that aims to document the stories of our destruction and our resilience in the mm -hmm. face of the climate crisis. And it's a collection of stories from all over the world. Yeah. Anybody can submit and they can submit anything. Right. We've had photo essays, poetry, mm -hmm. songs, um, articles, stories, sermons, even from Reverend Billy in New York. <laughs> um, and the aim is to tell these stories that inspire mm -hmm. because we know that two emotions spread quickly on the Internet, anger and inspiration. I think there's a lot of room for anger. I'm a big fan, actually, of anger when it's about the things that I really care about, obviously. Um, but there simply aren't enough stories being told of people who are really meeting the challenge now in the way that they can. Obviously, nobody is able to dismantle neoliberalism or the Western agenda or you know capitalism single-handedly. But communities and individuals embedded within communities are really achieving so much that just isn't being told. The stories that we are being sold are either, well, it's doomsday and there's no point to do anything oh, green growth will fix it, don't worry. Mm -hmm. um, or actually, there's nothing to worry about. Everybody that's worried about climate's a nut job. And in fact, what we know is that people are really making incredible, impactful changes to themselves and to their communities. Why aren't these stories being told? I agree completely. I'd love to tell you one quick story about a, a friend of mine uh, who died about 10 years ago. His name was Jim Copland. Uh, I met him uh, when I went back to graduate school, uh, nearly more than 30 years ago now. And, and Jim was a central Minnesota farm boy who got himself an education, became a university professor. He retired very early in his 50s and committed himself to community work, eventually settling in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, and, and Jim's story is one that would never make the papers, it would never make reality TV. He was a quiet, committed man who practiced both, uh, ecological sanity. He gardened, he contributed to the gardening of other people. Uh, he was really rooted in the earth, which came from his early experiences as a, as a farm kid. Uh, he was also on the political left. He was radical in his political analysis, and he contributed to a number of political movements. He also was a great neighbor. Uh, he was a member of a community. He, he very co consciously chose a community where he could make that kind of contribution. And, and it's hard for me to talk about him because he's the, the one person who changed my life so dramatically. He helped me see that there was a different way to live. I was on my way to becoming a university professor, which usually is about what? Publication, status, salary, getting up to the big time. And he gave me a model for a different way to be part of education, yet also be part of the community. Now, Jim was a a compelling figure, but the only people who know about him are people who knew him directly because he wasn't putting his face in front of a TV camera all the time. Uh, I actually wrote a book about Jim after he, after he died called Plain Radical that tried to talk about the influence he had. But we talk about friends of Copland. There are now, uh, there's a network of literally hundreds of us who know each other because of the quiet commitment Jim Copland made to being a decent human being and to caring for the earth. Probably some of the 
the fondest memories I have are visiting Jim in the summer when he was at work in his garden. Beautiful gardens. He took care of the land. Uh, he shared the bounty of that land. Uh, he helped me learn how to cook sensibly, uh, <laughs> meaning, you know, not cooking out of the freezer or a can every day. Uh, so what do we do with a story like that? I mean, it is inspirational, but it's a quiet inspiration. Right? It's not the flashy kind of stories we're used to hearing in contemporary media. So uh, I, I got so wrapped up in that, I completely forgot where we started the conversation about that. But that's, that's the kind of passion your, your conversation is sparking in me, you know, that desire to, to spread the stories of people like my friend Jim. If you would be interested, I would love for you to submit a tale of Jim to We Will Bear Witness. Yeah. The other thing your question reminded me of is I'm very fortunate to be married to a singer-songwriter uh, in the folk genre who has done this through song. Uh, her new record has a song called Witness. Uh, and she's, uh, she would describe herself as an aging hippie, um, <laughs> someone who came of age during that first wave of environmental consciousness in, a, in the United States, the late 60s and 70s. And for her entire career, in addition to singing about love lost and love found and the things you know musicians love to sing about, has a, a, a line in her work of that grieving and coming to terms with that. Uh, she's written what I think is the best song about capitalism ever called Runaway Train. Uh, <laughs> you know, she has a particular gift for translating all of these, not only the, the emotions of the world, but the factual realities of the world into song in a way I can't. I can't touch that level of poetry. Uh, so, you know, all sorts of people are needed for the kind of witness you're talking about. Artists, people who are, you know, yes. at work in the fields, educators, writers. Um, there's really room for everybody. And, and I, I want to go back to my experience here in rural New Mexico. Uh, what I've learned is that people bring that in very different ways. That when I run into a kind of a gruff old guy at, at the Asakia meeting, uh, <laughs> that a little bit of conversation uh, reveals to me that underneath it, there's that same connection to a world that's dying in some sense and a desire to contribute, even if it's in a small way, to saving that part of the world, which we can. Uh, and those are incredibly moving moments. Uh, if I seem to be obsessed with uh, ditch irrigation systems, it's because <laughs> we just finished two weeks of, of the communal cleaning, where every spring before the water runs, we go through and we clean out the ditch, debris, limbs, you know, everything that needs to, to be extracted so the water will flow. And those are uh, really profound moments for me because these are people I might not have known in everyday life. Uh, you know, I wouldn't have met them at the university. But, mm -hmm. but when you're in a ditch shoveling out, you know, garbage, uh, there's a real bond that happens. And, and I, again, I don't want to romanticize this. The world is hard. It's full of hard work and it's not always fun. But uh, hard work done together is possible to achieve. Uh, you know, when you're struggling on your own, it's pretty much guaranteed you'll fail. 
And so uh, I'm a big fan of, of these kind of very localized, very communal kind of enterprises, even though together they don't add up to a big solution for climate change. But they're, they're planting the seeds that make some decent human progress possible, I think. I think it's these stories that are truly important because they're the stories that reveal the truth of what is coming, mm -hmm. which is it will be hard. Yeah. And there will be a lot of suffering and the world is going to fundamentally change. But, yeah. Yeah. but within that, perhaps there will be opportunity for community, for yeah. collectivity, for artistry, yeah. for creativity in a way that embedded within this economic system, this global economic system, it is very hard to find and do those things today. It is so hard <laughs> that even communities living in the jungles of the most remote places on earth um, are having their homes destroyed and extracted for profit and being forced into a global system that they don't want any part in. You know, that's how difficult it is. And so perhaps if globalization runs its course and delivers a huge amount of suffering with that, there may be yeah. room for communities to be born anew in a way that we just yeah. don't see too often, yeah. certainly in this part of the world. Yeah. All of us, I think, who live in the developed world, and I'm not just talking about the 1% or the billionaires, but all of us, we have to recognize we've come to take for granted a high energy world. Uh -huh. uh, I'm doing some new writing, and here's an example I use. Uh, as I said, I live in rural New Mexico, and we, we get our water from a well. And that well is about, you know, 300 feet back from the house. And that well water comes to us through a pipe that is five feet down below the frost line. And, and because it's an old house, uh, we have leaks. And I've learned what it means to dig a hole, you know, three, four feet in diameter, five feet down. <laughs> it's hard work. <laughs> um, and, and in a world where there are backhoes, where you can get a little tractor out there, and do that work in an hour instead of 10 hours. That's very attractive. Capitalism has accelerated the human degradation of the landscape without question. But all of that energy is also very tempting because it does work for us that mm -hmm. is otherwise backbreaking. So, so let's say I wanted to dig a new trench for a new water pipe from the well to my house. If I were going to do that by hand, by myself, I'd be at work for the next few weeks on that. And it wouldn't be a lot of fun, right? But that's the, the low energy future we're talking about. Now, if instead of doing that myself, having to choose between, you know, three weeks of work or a backhoe, if I'm part of a community in which there's a shared commitment to doing yeah. that work, yeah. then all of a sudden it's different. Again, and I don't want to romanticize hard work. Right. Hard work is hard. It's, you know, my back is a little sore today from too much of it. And I never had to do it for a living, you know, eight, 10 hours a day for my whole life. So the, the thing, though, when I talk to people who grew up, especially on farms that were essentially pre-industrial, there are still people alive who grew up on farms that were essentially 19th century farms, right? They didn't have, tra I know a lot of people who grew up on farms where they had not yet gotten tractors when, when they were kids. And the one theme that comes over and over again is that hard labor shared 
is a source of community solidarity, right? That mm -hmm. if people pitch in together to do work, that's a, a source of ongoing commitment. Whereas hard work done either by yourself or where you, you pay people who are economically disadvantaged to do it because you don't have to, that's a, that's a, a source of community splintering. And so I think any place where people get together and do work together is important. Let me, let me just give you another example uh, on how this can work. The part of New Mexico I live in is traditionally Hispanic and indigenous. So we have uh, the Pueblos, uh, the indigenous folks, the, the descendants of the Spanish conquerors, right? and they have lived together, not always uh, you know, harmoniously, sometimes with tension for a long time. Now there's a, an increased number of people who look like me, uh, Anglos who came in usually from another place with resources. And that's a recipe for division, ethnic conflict. You have the, the indigenous folks, you have the Hispanic who have been here for a long, long time, and you have the recent Anglo immigrants. And sometimes that's what happens. You see those tensions, especially when there are financial divides. When rich white people come to a place and act like rich white people, on the other hand, when we come together in shared work, like the Sasekia system, those divisions, they don't go away. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that there, there isn't an awareness of these historical and ethnic divisions here, but they can be managed. Here's an example of that. Uh, there's some folks here who have noticed we have a lot of fruit orchards up here, uh, apples, pears, plums. It's an incredible place to live. But a lot of that fruit goes unharvested. Maybe it's uh, trees on a property of an absentee owner who doesn't live here year round. And so people are starting to say, why are we letting all this fruit drop to the ground and rot when we could collectively harvest? And there's a, a, a movement around here to try and figure out how would we do that? Not simple. How do you get people who are busy on their own property, busy in their own jobs? How do you get them to come together and say, well, let's as a community collect this fruit and see what we can do with it, you know, either to give away or start a community business, whatever it might be. It's all in a very early stage of development here. But that's a pretty exciting project. Again, it's not going to stop climate change, but it starts to give people the experience of competence to run their own lives. And that's something I, I think a lot about. Uh, one of the real problems with this world is people often don't have an opportunity to prove to themselves that they're competent to run their own lives. Mm -hmm. I think of my own upbringing, how it was so easy to think, well, I can't do that, so I have to rely on an institution to do that. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the most exciting things for me is to create opportunities where people, especially young people, get the opportunity to prove they are competent to run their own lives. It seems simple. It, means, it might even seem silly, but I think it's probably crucial if we are going to, as a species, make this transition as humanely as possible to a low energy, uh, a low energy world of the future. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that it's something that young people in particular are waking up to now. Yeah. I think because the opportunities, okay, I'm a millennial. Um, so I remember when the world was my oyster and then I remember when everything changed. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I think us millennials yeah. are pretty bloody indignant about it. Like, are you, are you joking? Yeah. You know, we were we were raised with a sense of certainly um, my race, my class in this country. We were raised with a sense of entitlement about what we could and couldn't achieve. And now those opportunities are so scarce, it's not even worth really competing for them anymore. And Gen Z were raised in a world that, to quote my cousin, was already fucked. Um, she's 20. Um, and so I think that they are choosing, I don't know, they, they, they see through the world a little bit clearer than I think mm. we did in the sense that what there is nothing to fight over, so why would we fight? Mm. And why do we want to be part of a system that is not going to reward us? And I think it's so imperative to teach young people that they can and must actually exist as much as possible embedded within a community that yeah. is resilient, yeah. um, but not necessarily anymore within institutions, yeah. certainly not in old imaginations and old futures, because those imaginations yeah. and futures will not provide for them. Yeah. Um, and I think it's exciting to to see what that generation will do. I mean, they're just sort of coming to the age now where the younger ones are going to start graduating university. What are they going to go off and do? What are mm -hmm. they going to see? What will they create? Because they have to create. There is nothing for them to have now. Yeah. They have to create. I think it's really interesting if you look at the um, ages of climate activists. Huge. Like the majority of young ones, the majority of them fall into the Gen Z camp rather than the millennial camp because mm. they know that there is nothing left for them in a sense. They are going to have to rebuild the world anew. Mm -hmm. And to do that, they're going to have to stop some very powerful forces from driving it over the cliff that we're already halfway over. Yeah. Um, so any stories that empower those young people to do it. Oh, great. I, I know that you came on to discuss an inconvenient apocalypse, which I did read. And I really enjoyed this swapping of stories, actually, as a way of communicating the book's message. Well, this is what the book is about in some ways. And who cares about books? Human conversation is always much more interesting than a book. You know, as long as we're swapping stories. Yeah. I want to tell a story about how, how progressive ideology, left-wing left ideology, and I consider myself a hardcore lefty, mm -hmm. uh, can also get in the way and how we have to break through some of that. I, uh, I had a friend who ran a, a program, a farm program for young people, and it gave city kids the opportunity to work on a farm in the summer and, and to be compensated, to be paid for. And he was talking to some younger, you know, ideologically uh, driven activist types. And he said, one of the things our program helps people learn is the value of hard work. And he was told, well, you know, hard work is a capitalist concept. It's really, you know, okay, well, <laughs> both things are true. In, yeah. in capitalism, people are trained that if they don't work hard, they have no value. And in that case, working hard means working to increase the profits of whatever company you work for. And that is an impediment to human flourishing. I agree completely. Mm -hmm. But the fact is the work of the world, providing food, shelter, clothing, is hard work. And right now, that work is not, you know, apportioned equally around the world. A certain class of people do most of the hard work and another class of people largely escape it. I was in that class for a long time. I spent my adult life as a journalist and an academic, which meant I didn't do manual labor for a living. Right? Mm -hmm. And so that value of hard work is both an ideological impediment, but it's also a necessary part of a decent human community. And one of the ways I learned that was by growing up in North Dakota, 
So excuse the nostalgia here, although I'm not mm -hmm. terribly nostalgic about growing up in North Dakota. <laughs> I grew up in what I call the pre-snowblower world. Before snowblowers, these you know, snow removal machines became common. And that meant that I grew up shoveling snow. Now, uh, in, in my experience, shoveling snow is not a high skill occupation. Let me explain here. It's just basically just hard work. But as a, as a young kid, I learned there were better and lesser ways to shovel snow. There were techniques you could use to make it easier. You could make things go faster. You could make the snow removal look better, all sorts of things. And I, without really thinking about it as a kid, learned to do that. I had an opportunity to prove that I was competent at something, even something as simple as shoveling snow. And I am so glad I grew up before snowblowers were common, where people just used a machine to do that, because I got the opportunity to learn what it meant to do a job well, even if that job was as simple as shoveling snow. The reason that came to mind is I was once talking to a, a younger friend, a political activist I worked on anti-war activities with, who was 20 years younger than me. And I explained how grateful I was for that. And he looked at me like I was crazy. Like you were just a, you know, a slave to the snow shovel. What do you think? And I think those opportunities have been lost. And so, you know, the idea of hard work is, is one of these complex questions. We don't want to unquestioningly submit to the capitalist notion of work. But we also have to recognize that without work, uh, we don't live. And so how do we share that? And how do we take pride in it? Uh, and I think, you know, one of the things that is most destructive about capitalism is it forces people to work in situations where it's hard to take pride in what you do. Right. Now, people, Bullshit jobs. Yeah, people might be saying, well, you sound like an old guy. I don't care. Old, I am an old guy. If I sound like one, that's fine. But this is the complexity of the world, right? That systems that denigrate basic human virtue, like pride in work, right? Don't mean that we abandon the notion of pride in work. It means that we try to formulate new systems within which to do it. Uh, and the older I get, the more I think these really basic questions are important. And again, I don't want to denigrate policy. I don't want to say that, you know, advocating for Subsidies for solar energy. I'm all for subsidies for solar energy. I think it's a very smart policy. And I think I'm glad people want to do the hard work, the political work of going from an idea to an actual policy, right? It's not that there's one kind of work that's more important than the other. It's that in addition to that traditional sense of activism, whether it's out in the street or in you know the halls of Congress lobbying, both of which are a form of political work, there's this other level that you and I are talking about that is human and communal and doesn't lead to a definable result where I can say, oh, well, you know, uh, the use of fossil fuels in my community was reduced by 7% because of what I did this year, this year. But it starts to formulate a different way of being in the world. And part of the reason I know it's important is because I get emotional when I think about it because it touches something in me that both forces me to recognize the grief about what the world is, right? both ecologically and socially, but also gives me a reason to get up in the morning. Uh, and I do get up in the morning. People say, you know, you're really a downer. How do you get out of bed? 
you know, and I, the only answer is I don't know how I do it, but I do it. I don't stay in bed all day. I get up with a certain sense of grief and a certain sense of joy. Both exist together, right? Uh, I often think of a line from Wendell Berry, the American poet and novelist who's uh, much revered in the environmental movement for his ability through fiction and poetry to get at some of these things. And in his landmark book called The Unsettling of America, where he talked about the horrendous consequences of industrial agriculture, he's, he's reflecting on the human condition. And he says, we live on the human estate of grief and joy. We always have. Human beings have always lived with grief and joy. We have a cognitive and emotional capacity to both recognize, in some sense, the indescribable suffering all around us and to grieve that. And to at the same time feel that joy that comes from being human and living in connection to others. Well, in that sense, nothing's changed since, you know, the, the dawn of the species. We live on the human estate of grief and joy. Maybe the challenges today are more imposing than they were 100,000 years ago. Undoubtedly, they are. Right? But it doesn't mean that we're any different. We still can balance both of those things. And that's, I'm going to reflect again on my wife's music. Um, she captures both of those things. Her, her records are not just, you know, a reflection on grief, although her songs that grieve like that are incredibly powerful. There's also an incredible joy in her work. So I mentioned her song, Runaway Train, which I just think is a, a wonderful, scary account of capitalism. That was on a, a CD called Beautiful World. And there's a song called Beautiful World. That's just a reflection on in the midst of all this, we are immersed in beauty as well. Right. Uh, I'm really not much of a poet or a philosopher here. So I'm, I'm kind of waxing eloquent beyond my, my level of competence. But that's the kind of struggle we all need to recognize is both of this moment and it's the enduring human experience in the world as well. I think that's a beautiful note to end on, Bob. Thank you so much. My final question for you is, who would you like to platform? Uh, well, the answer I was going to give you uh, would have been Nandita Bajaj, who <laughs> I, I, I know you has already been on the, on the podcast. Uh, but even though uh, she's been there already, I do want to reflect on why I would have said that. Uh, because... She's an incredibly brave person, uh, unafraid of the consequences of telling the truth as she sees it about population. Um, and, and because she, she doesn't fit the, the stereotype of somebody who cares about population. For a long time in the United States, people who cared about the population were basically affluent white people who wanted to keep what they had. And Nandita, originally from India, now living in Canada, um, has a science and technology background, but very rooted in the humanities, uh, is to me just uh, such a hopeful person, uh, somebody who's willing to, to dig in and do the hard work over a long period of time, somebody who believes in art, education, and policy, who doesn't see the solution coming from any one place, and who has a wonderful sense of humor. And then, of course, there's always my co-author, Wes Jackson, uh, and the teaser would be that if you had him on the podcast, 
you could get him, get him to explain why his book was called Hogs Are Up. <laughs> All right. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Bob, thank you so much for your time. Rachel, thank this you. It was a pleasure. It was a really powerful conversation for me. Thank you. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.